Now we don't have any value. So, you know multiverse theory? I do. I'm familiar. Right. Yeah, they had uh, those more universes and versions of us and all that stuff. So there's, I think, like a version of us. We'll call them uh, Schlangden and Sheeden. Those guys Good. suck, by the way. Um, terrible people. And they're doing the um, Earth of the New Sun today. Instead of moving on from the Book of the New Sun <laughs> books. Um, and they they deserve it, right? Because uh, those guys suck, as we said. So fuck them and we're not going to do that. I, I don't want to see the world Severian for at least like a few years. Yep. It uh, reminds me of... So I'm uh, on, on Trouble. I'm finishing off with my editor a year-long series we've been doing, doing this very, very deep dive into the entire uh, studio catalog of U2, which yeah. I think is a broadly underrated band, which is weird to say, but it, mm -hmm. I think it's... It's true, but also, yeah, it turns out that if you spend one year doing <laughs> hundreds of hours of close listening to you, too, you actually yeah. hate them at the end. You don't say. I, I'm, I'm shocked that you would say that. It's weird, isn't it? Although yeah. I don't hate Book of the New Sun, I just fear it, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I just need <laughs> a break, you know? On, on the flip side, I have um, a hot take for you, which I think will solve a lot of your problems. I'm excited. I I, I like have a lot of plague. problems and they all need to be solved. Yeah, I like the plague now. That's Same. it. I'm done. I'm, I've yeah. decided I've decided to like it. That's look, I have the same stress response, which is um so you know, I've read a lot of Camus. I've read a lot of Emil Sioran. I've read a yeah. lot of uh Eugene Thacker, you know, these yeah. these uh philosophical nihilist and post nihilist um thinkers. Um, and they have a very powerful tool that, you know, they, they get poo-pooed as being edgelords, and that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, they are. They have a, it, yeah, it's true. Um, but they have a very powerful tool, which is when something bad happens, you go, this is good, actually. Yeah. I am pro-COVID. Don't get me wrong. Like, not like pro-vaccination or pro-all that stuff, like countermeasures. I'm pro the actual disease. It's good. Yes, actually. Like, all of you rubes are running around saying that it's bad, when actually it is good. And, and, and that, so there's two ways, you know, there's one of the principles in philosophy is kind of a reverse Occam's razor, where an exp as, as an explanation gets more powerful, like it explains more things, the more likely it is to be true, Right. Um, because if, if you just explain something and all the pieces fall into place, there's a high chance that that's actually what things, um, how things work, right? So you can, you could explain the total abdication of governmental responsibility in two ways, right? You could choose the first way wrong, completely wrong, which, uh, says all that stuff about class warfare and how the elites have a vested interest in workers dying and makes like labor cheaper and all that shit. 
nonsense bullshit that only kids believe, you know, um, Marxists and kids, mm-hmm. all those idiots. And then you have my explanation, which they're not actually abdicating the responsibility. The responsibility is to spread COVID as much as possible because COVID is actually a good thing. Yeah, I like that one. Um, yeah. So it reminds me of how, like, if you were uh, of the investor class, which we both are, obviously. Mm. Um, I mean, you're, and, you're, you're a trillionaire, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, you, need, you don't get there through these piddle shit ways of, like, a job. What's that? Fuck that. No, um, you get so, there by running Tencent, which you do. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I am the real CEO of Tencent. Um, yeah devoting most of our funds towards a giant pearlescent statue of Poseidon, which we will sink into the sea for my one god. Um, but uh, you you wind up seeing that all of these people dying is uh, good, actually. Like, America is expected to have, in the month of January, roughly 90,000 COVID-related deaths, which is uh, the most... I love it. What's that? Yeah, I, it's like that's, that's that's the most of any month ever in the entire pandemic. Fantastic. That's that's amazing. I mean, <clears throat> I could I could see if you're anti-COVID, that is if you're wrong, I could see how that would be a bad thing. But from where I'm uh sitting, um of course, I am sitting famously on on a throne bought by the blood of all the people oil companies have killed um, in the last two centuries or century and a half. Uh, so from that throne, that that's a great number. Um, and we should increase it. And we are, by the way, we're, we're working yes. on it. I'm making that's that. That's going to accelerate that. We're accelerationists, parentheses, derogatory. Yeah. So in order to, so the, the plan is going well, right? Like the pro Absolutely. Agenda is progressing, so we don't have I to thought, vote. I yeah. was so worried that COVID was gonna stop, you know, and yeah. all the dying would stop, and that these, like, say, um, because you know, we have this rhetoric that people who are uh, the broad mass of anti vaccination people are themselves evil, which uh, discounts all the hard work we've been doing to delude and destroy their connection to reality. Yeah. such that they would become this way. You know, I really don't like that kind of erasure that, you know, people like us have spent so long trying to erode their very connection to the girding structures that make reality make sense, such that when you tell them that medicine is bad, actually, and it makes you die instead of live, that they go, that makes sense to me. That's yes. a lot I of work. That takes a lot of work. A lot of work. It's just been made invisible. And also, like, I think the big win for us, again, the pro-COVID camp, right? Like, the guys who like the disease, um, the people who are right, right? Um, One of the most brilliant strokes is convincing people that if you do get vaccinated, then you're done. That's it. Uh, You don't have to do anything else um, because responsibility is bad, honestly. I hate responsibility and again i cannot like restate this enough i love covid so once you get vaccinated you can stop um doing anything yeah i mean you'd think that it would be harder to convince people that in a world where there's yeah 
a multi-step method for basically everything. You know, when yeah. it comes to like maintaining your home, it's not like you just vacuum and you're done. There's there's lots of little parts to it and they all lock together and it becomes yeah. easier the more you do all of them. You'd think that given all that passive knowledge, it would have been hard to convince people that COVID is the same and you need to do more than just one magic bullet one time. But yet, apparently, it was very easy for us, which I'm, gr- yeah. I'm grateful for. Yeah. No, one of our greatest strokes of genius. So, so anyway, there's no reason to rest on our laurels, right? Like the COVID, the pro-COVID campaign is progressing um, at pace, which means we can devote our energies towards other explorations. And um, what I would like to explore today is the fact that a person, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not saying who that person is, but I think it is likely that we can assume who that person is, is using the Pain of Salvation account. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> listener, that Pain of Salvation account. Uh, I mean, that Pain of Salvation, right? The, the progressive metal band who enjoyed most of their fame in the late 90s and the mid 2000s. Um, they're using whoever that person is. Again, I cannot know for sure. They're using this account to do what is can only be referred to as divorced dad posting. Or alternatively, boomer posting. Yes. Well, I mean, all boomers are divorced, right? Uh, because they actually, ha- they actually hate their wives, as their comics keep on telling us. Um, and their dumb misogynistic uh, jokes keep on telling us. So, it, so is, this guy- it does track that he would make progressive music and have such divorced energy on account of that is the most divorced dad music that is made. I say yeah. this as someone who listened to three separate prog concept records last night. Yeah, and I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the first uh, four, four, right, or five Pain of Salvation albums. Yeah, the is- fifth one is Beast, and I absolutely count B. Yeah, I don't really like be that much but I, I guess it still counts as a good album um that's one of the best like album runs in metal's history um yeah in yeah. my book um but i when think your another... weak album is one hour by the concrete lake like that's the yeah. weak one that's yeah, crazy exactly. exactly so um another thing we need to consider here again we cannot know for sure who is using this account um but we need to consider that we actually we cited boomers but i think there is a very Gen X kind oh, of yeah. vibe happening here. So just to catch you listeners up, um, in the last <laughs> like the Apple post, uh, it, they're all amazing. Like I can't even choose. We'll start with the the Intel one, right? The, the Mac Intel one. Uh, I'm just going to read you this comment, and this is from the official Pain of Salvation page on Facebook, like blue check mark and all. Um, this is. A post on Mac Rumors, which is like a huge Facebook page for Apple-related news about the new Intel i9 processor. If you're already falling asleep, then that <laughs> is entirely justified because this is boring as fuck. And this is what the official Pen of Salvation account had to say. Intel has always been fast and noisy and hot and unreliable. I once switched from Windows to the reliable world of Apple, so I was bummed when they started using Intel processors. Fast, loud, and shaky. I can't express how happy I was when they switched to the M1. I instantly gave up my one-year-old 4,500 euros Intel MacBook Pro for a neat and dead silent 1,600 euros M1 MacBook that kicked its ass from day one. Free at last. (laughs) The pathos, (laughs) the, the conviction 
the depth of of emotion and if you think this is the worst one you are wrong um he has commented on uh, a post about how eating human food reduces microbial diversity in bear guts um with the following comment that is sadly the screenshot is like the see more is not clicked but it begins well duh the only shelf in modern food stores that had great macros is the shelf three dots like he's he goes on this rant about modern food and yeah uh, which if if you've seen pictures of modern daniel gildenlow um the fact he he's insanely shredded so he's absolutely mm. one of those like uh gym pre-workout chemistry guys yeah yeah 100 percent. And, and and another one on sorry sorry go ahead oh i was gonna say uh, and uh the fact that he cares so much about such dumb random shit <laughs> i find um this is gonna sound to anyone who isn't a pain of salvation fan like i'm lying but i swear to god i'm telling the truth this is insanely endearing. I'm like, this is what I like. <laughs> we don't get concept records like One Hour by the Concrete Lake, which came with, I'm not sure if you own the physical yeah. release of it. Even, yeah, yeah, but yeah, 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 I did. It came with liner notes of like all of the things he was citing. Like, oh, here is the Concrete Lake that I'm referencing in the title. Here's the history of it. Here's the, like, um, B was filled with the same kinds of shit in the liner notes. B straight up sounds like a, a crazy person corkboard uh, liner notes. Yeah. He, so he went true bing bong on it, but it's like we don't get those unless this guy goes way deep into random shit. So, okay. I, trust I the process, do... Eden. Trust the yeah, process. Yeah. No, I don't trust the process though because the last few albums have been absolutely terrible. Um, but disagree, let me... mild disagree. Passing Light of Day, I think, was really strong. Panther grew on me, but I'm not going to blame anyone who said that it didn't grow on them. <laughs> no, no. I think Passing Light of Day was fine, and Panther was bad, but, but we'll get to it in a sec. I'm going to escalate yeah. the conversation like into something more general in a second. One last example. This is on, I'm not even joking, I fucking love science, which is... If I had one orbital strike, I would seriously consider like yeah. choosing if, the server that this page is on and just nuking we, it. If we could make a broad uh, chart. So one would be art, uh, papers like um, Brain Magazine, which yeah. is a neuroscience magazine, ironically named after a doctor whose name was Brain, not named after <laughs> the structure of the brain. Not kidding there, by the way. Yeah, I know, I know, um, I know. And we've all, I think that that's been passing around recently. So you have that and you're like, okay, that's legit science or nature or things like that. You know, it's real science journals. Then you have scientific American and there's, um, European and, uh, central Asian, uh, parallels, uh, to that magazine where it's like, it's real science, but you know, written in a little bit more approachable way. Then you have popular science, which is you're starting to get to, this is like the YouTube thumbnail version of real science. Yeah. It's like, it's not wrong, but it's clearly like, and then you have, I fucking love science, which is yeah. like, uh, the Robux of, of popular science, not even of real science. It's beautiful. Yeah, so it's beautiful. So they posted world's first skyscraper designed to hang suspended from an asteroid. <laughs> so, it was like, I'm not even joking. There's 8.7 thousand comments. <laughs> oh my god. Um, and then Pain of Salvation, the official account, once again, 
Um, relax, peeps. It's only that. A design. Some creative nerds who want some attention. You don't have to juxtapose it to healthcare. I guess like people in the comments were going, you know, why are we spending our money on this when we don't even have healthcare or whatever, like Medicare for all, which again is a dumb thing to write because obviously this is a concept. It's not an actual fucking company. That's it's going a to- drawing. It's a <laughs> yeah. drawing of the building. Yeah, exactly. That's like, that's like going to like a Disney movie and saying, why is the mouse casting spells? That seems like wildly irresponsible. Um, Why isn't a... he solving world hunger? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> Mickey Mouse in Fantasia has the ability to duplicate objects. Like we see this on screen. Why isn't Mickey Mouse solving world hunger in Fantasia? Um, this is breaking my suspension of disbelief. Anyway, that's dumb. But then replying to it with this comment, when your pain of salvation, when your Daniel Gildenlaw, I-, I guess, allegedly, from the official pain of salvation account, is it's not even dumb. It like it's so dumb that it does this like postmodernist flip and becomes smart. <laughs> like it becomes okay. So so now this is where we escalate the conversation, right? Um, first to pen observation itself, and then from that, I wanna like talk a bit about '90s and 2000s pog and like where it's kind of left us today. Um, I think, and 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 this goes back to B, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the criticism that is leveraged. Um, at B is to be to be clear. That's B E, right? Not the animal, but the verb to be. Or the letter, not the letter B. Or the letter, right? Uh, and if you're not familiar, it's um, progressive metal concept album about like God <laughs> recognizing itself. Yeah, uh, it's, it's which, about a satellite. And also, um, go to the Wikipedia for God and just read <laughs> random words. Yeah, exactly. Any so, word that you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Um, that's the that's the criticism leveraged at it that it's the point where Gildenlaw's substantial ego and ability to smell his own faults um, kind of went overboard, right? Because you can't make the point that the, the albums before it are any less grandiose, ambitious, full of themselves, self-indulgent, and very much um, satisfied with themselves and especially with Gildenlaw, right? And and yeah. to be clear here, like Daniel Gildenlaw is one of the most talented vocalists in the history of of metal. Like and a hell he, of a composer and guitar player too. Yeah, like Yes. Like he's a very talented person, but he has always known that he is one. Uh, I mean, he's had success and accol- accolades from a very young age. He won awards all the way back to the 80s when he was a teenager. Yeah, and he's before like 13 that, when he won his first one. Which, yeah, uh, exactly, um, and it and it tells right, and a lot of his writing is very clearly like about how he sees himself and his struggles as a smart person in the world, blah 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 blah. And then the the criticism is that in B it doesn't work right, like the um, illusion or the suspension of disbelief, which I've already cited, doesn't work. There's something about the album that just doesn't land as well as. Um, Entropia, One Hour by the Concrete Lake, The Perfect Element Part 1, and Remedy Lane, which is, I have yet to hear of a person saying that neither of those albums is a masterpiece. One of them is. Potentially all four. Um, Usually people cite three, right? Entropia, Perfect Element, and Remedy Lane, 
with one owl by the concrete late as langdon said being the weakest one but it's still a fantastic album just yeah, those other three yeah. there there's there was a stretch where i listened to the first four and the last four songs of one hour by the concrete lake for like on repeat the only problem yeah. with it is it feels a bit samey but if you like that kind of european mixture of progressive and like gothic metal yeah. that was pretty big in the late 80s and early 90s it's fucking great um yeah so <laughs> that that's kind of like the discussion about conservation which is interesting in in the retrospect of those comments and panther because i feel like passing light of day already had just literally daniel gildenlaw's shredded back with a tattoo on it yeah it was that's when for me like it completely jumped the shock right like this guy is literally just putting his own body on the cover of a band he is notoriously a tyrant about running and by the way did not pay i think allegedly i think the court actually ruled against him so i don't have to say allegedly but i'll say it just in case um for um not paying some of the musicians that work with him by the way not paying fucking ragnar zolberg who is just as talented as Daniel Gildenlaw. Like he's he's a fucking, crazy fucking talented. He, and yeah. He's a child. Yeah. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic artist who yeah. has sadly not done um, enough work. I mean, he obviously founded Sign and um, collaborated with Pen of Salvation. And some of my favorite um, Pen of Salvation tracks feature Ragnar. Um, specifically Those Falling, Road Salt records were... Hmm. Amazing. And, and Falling Home as well, I think, is really yeah. underrated. Really, really good. Um, acoustic album. Anyway, back to uh, Gildenlaw. And then with Panther, he even, he he went like one step further. There was like a video for the title track where it was like, Daniel, do you want to fuck a Panther? Or, <laughs> or do you want to be a Panther and get fucked by someone else? Some There was some sort of furry kind of, I'm not kink shaming, but you know. So I, I I give him a lot more leeway for in the passing light of day, specifically for um, the context around the record and then the concept of the record itself, which is that he did quite literally almost die from yeah. flesh eating bacteria. And right. the record is literally just from his journals in the hospital bed and like songs devoted to his wife, songs devoted to his children, songs reflecting on his life. So I'm like, okay, it is literally about him. So him being on the cover makes sense. And the drawing of like musical themes from Remedy Lane and Perfect Element makes sense because those are, it's one of those, like they're, they're basically autobiographical. He, he tweaks some details, but you know, it's, it's about, the whole band has really been about him. Um, yeah, Panther is a, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> one, it's one of those. I I think for people who didn't like it, um, they did the very fair thing, which is they looked at the name on the tin and they pressed play on the record and they went, "What the fuck is this? Yeah. What the fuck is this?" Um, you kind of have to mentally divorce. Uh, one, the fact that Pain of Salvation is a band with more than one person, um, which for whether we like it or not, Daniel's made very clear. It's a band with one person and then yeah. employees. Um, and then from there, this kind of, I think, leans into where you're going. It sounds a lot more like a more aggressive version of like Airbag or Bruce Sword or things like yeah. that, rather than pain of salvation like the weird fucked up rhythms are pain of salvation but musically it's more in that 
electronic so, slash ambient prog. For sure, which is thing. fine. I, I really like Bull Sword. Um, very underrated composer in my eyes. And Pineapple Thief is a really good band. Well, they had like two or three good albums and then 20 bad ones. Like they have, he's, He makes a lot of music. Um, he does. Uh, the records that Gavin Harrison has so far have been fucking killer. Yes. I our mean, Dissolution? Oh, no, Our I mean, Wilderness Gavin, and Gavin, Dissolution. Gavin Harrison can make anything sound great, including Porcupine Tree rimshot. Um, but that's Escalade, rude. <laughs> I, I love I love Porcupine Tree. Honestly, I love them. But the only justification for the new album is so that I can hear Gavin Harrison drumming on something again. Nothing else sounds interesting on that first track. Um, I- I think the fact that they straight up say these are demos we refurbished and this is us testing out the engine to see if it works. That's bought me a lot of leeway. Like, I'm not expecting you to give me an in absentia from cast off demos from the incident. Um, yeah. The incident. I want to I want I want to make you feel better. You're perfectly fine. You're not great. You're not great, but you're fine. It's and fine. that's OK. So actually, this is a good. <laughs> I think this is a good direction to kind of escalate the conversation away from Pen of Salvation and into, the, I think, the more interesting principle of the thing, because Stephen Wilson is one more example of uh-huh. exactly <laughs> the type of persona that we're discussing here. So, so for those of you who are not as stuck into like the history of, of metal, there, I know that it's hard to understand right now, but progressive metal in the 90s was big. It was like very big, like Dream Theater were on the radio. No, not like metal people radio, like straight up radio all over New York State. That's where we get Pain of Salvation and we, we can keep going. OSI, Sparks Build, um, of course, Liquid Tension Experiment and all the Dream Theater derivatives, right? And then later down the 90s, you get this second wave um which famously had people like, rest in peace, Sean Malone, doing a lot of interesting stuff. And then members of Dream Theater kind of became their own nodes, right? Like Bruce Dickinson did a progressive metal album, right? Um, a solo solo progressive metal album. So uh, it was very, very big, but it was a specific genre and type of progressive metal that was very, very big. And it's exactly the type of progressive metal that Pen of Salvation and all of the other bands that I cited made, which is, quote-unquote, serious progressive metal, right? Dark progressive metal. So if you look at, you know, going for Dream Theater is easy, right? But it's a really good example. If you listen to the first few albums, that is Images and Words um, and Awake, you hear the brightness, right? You hear Rush and Yes and the Beatles and many other acts like that. And then during Falling into Infinity, but even more powerfully on Scenes for Memory, no, we're serious now. It's not learning to live. It's a concept album about a murder, right? And, <laughs> and hypnosis. That, 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 that's literally the difference, right? And you can, you can start yeah. to see it on um, Falling into Infinity, right? It's not... Um, uh, surrounded, which is a very hopeful song, it is uh, Lines in the Sand, right? About how religion is bad and leading us all into suicide, or Trial of Tears, which is the last maybe Bastion, right? The last bright dream theater song, but it's also already much darker. But this is not a dream theater episode, right? Um, so it's not just that. Stephen Wilson made his career from this, right? Like the difference between 
stuff like Voyage 34 and the sky moves sideways and all the experimental stuff that he did and In Absentia and Stupid Dream and all that stuff. Again, I love all those albums, but before he could explode, he needed to go down that path of seriousness. Right? Like of the, uh, the, the the record that, that really like made it click for Porcupine Tree on like a commercial and the one that started to accelerate the process where they started playing on XM and they famously put out like Coma Divine off of the back of it. And then two yeah. different live records was Signify, which is a loose concept album about either committing suicide or getting a terminal illness and then dying. Yeah. And, and, and we can keep going like all those bands that I cited, um, like Threshold, for example, all followed kind of like the same vibe. Now, the interesting thing is, is that that kind of vibe one went on to become progressive metal right like today when someone says progressive metal that's what they mean like that style of of music even though there's a million more flavors today and back then don't get me wrong like also back then that you had different textures but that kind of became so popular that it stayed the mainstream of of prog metal but also it came with that persona Right? You needed that person like Stephen Wilson, like Daniel Gildenlaw, to the extent um, like Portnoy and like Petrucci uh, for Dream Theater, um, because you know James Debris can't be like the serious brooding guy. Right? It's just not what, who he is. Um, so and, and it's a you should tell and... him that because yeah, uh, I should. That fucking goatee. <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of like a chicken and egg question, right? Like what what came first? Um, did, did 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 these personas drift towards that kind of music or did that kind of music make them into those people and of course the answer is yes right like it happened um both ways and to like tie a knot around this and maybe stop ranting about this um this kind of is interesting in what's happening with those people today because like pair salvation and daniel's um energies allegedly on Facebook, Stephen Wilson has been doing much of the same. Like, oh yeah. Ev every time I hear Stephen Wilson talking, it's about how uh, modern production has no dynamics and we should all go back to analog. Or how Spotify, like streaming is awful and he will never be on Spotify one year before putting all of his discography on Spotify because I guess his label was like, dude, that's too much money to well, give he, up on. He gave a statement about why he went on Spotify and I think that like, even he skimmed past it, even though it was like this big insightful thing, which is that like, so he at a live concert, he Prince passed away. Everyone loves Prince. You like, if you like music, you like Prince. So he goes yeah. and plays a Prince cover and the like crowd just like doesn't respond. And he starts looking into it and finds that Prince and his estate had fought being on streaming in any capacity basically from the word go on YouTube, like famously, if you, if you played like three notes of a print song, your video would get taken down. Um, it, yeah. was, it was a nightmare. Um, but he was like, I think this has contributed to people in the digital age, just not knowing this great musician because he chose not to make his music available through the means that people listen to music now and had this uncharacteristic brief understanding of the modern world. <laughs> yeah. That like we can have and should have, the set criticisms of things like Spotify that people do have. It is just blatantly true that their 
extorting musicians and oh yeah reaping. i hate spotify don't get me wrong but but, but the reason but that he the, cited was a boomer reason right yeah exactly it's like the the issue with spotify is that people should be earning more money given that the company is earning that money that money should go towards the people earning them that money the the, the notion of taking putting the cat back in the bag of yeah. like oh streaming we're gonna make sure it dies like that's stupid that's never gonna happen yeah, uh, he's also a classic guy who loves to go on, and whenever he talks about politics, his po- his politics are so bad, dude. He changed his Instagram profile to a blue square to support Israel during the latest uh, war operation in Gaza genocide. Yep. I don't know how you want to call it. He's like rapidly. <sighs> zionist pro-israeli like shut the fuck up dude you don't have to have an opinion on everything else like i know your partner or your wife or girlfriend i don't remember like i know they she's are israeli. married now. they're married great i know that like she's israeli and you spend time here I, I i bought him a beer once right and a local tel aviv bar right i know you like this place i also like this place some of my favorite people on the planet are here but it doesn't matter that it doesn't change the fact that Israel is a genocidal ethno state, right? Like you don't have to change your yeah. fucking. Oh you can be God. like the people are like it's such an easy thing to do as well to be like, oh, the people are wonderful, and the government that's fomented around them is has this different characteristic than you see within the populace, or you know, all these normal, not even terribly complicated views of the weird, yeah. the the strange relationship between governments and the and the polity. Yeah. No, nah, he can't do it. No, he's no, only he got to say boomer shit. But again, because so much of this uh, vein of progressive metal slash rock, which again, he's maybe the most famous example of, except for Dream Theater, I guess. Um, by the way, another like Stephen Wilson related band, which was a big part of this is Opeth, right? Um, yeah. and, and look at, well, this is a whole episode, right? But look at the response of the fans from that period to the new OPEF material. And to be clear, like, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, what was it, Sorceress? What was the one before that? Um, Pale Communion. The one before that was Pale Communion. And then Heritage. So I think Heritage is good. Pale Communion is fine. Sorceress is bad. And then In Cauda Venom is actually really good. Um, I like all four of them. I will defend you until the end of time, Michael Ackerfeld. Yeah. Um, it's so, pathological on my end, though, so I can't. No, I honestly can't I, tell if the music is good. <laughs> no, but that's why I'm not. I'm not arguing with you, Langdon. You see, I have learned to like recognize your pathologies. That's what friendship is, right? And I'm working that around is. them. Um, so it's all- but again. Going back to, uh, by the way, oh my god, um, talking about like self-centered personalities that take over <laughs> bands, right? Like Michael Ackerfeld kind of perfected that formula. But look at the response of like old head fans of Opef to the new material because it has joy in it, right? It's not yeah. all, like if you look at Opeth albums, again, Opeth are one of my all-time favorite bands. I love them. I've Jesus, seen them live yes. like 10 times or even more. Like I love them. But if you look at their material, it's like death, suffering, depression, possession by demons and then more death and then you get resurrected and you get murdered again because the demon kills you um and the water is bleak and the leaves are falling and it's stormy outside and blah 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 like there's one track and then with heritage they're like oh (laughs) what if we have a jazz freak out (laughs) yeah but also like history family language country here's a song about how much we love dio yeah, um, 
we that really like tight. yeah we really like king crimson remember what it felt like to listen to music which was fun remember that and then everybody's like no you must not have fun and fun like, is we, for the weak and they're like on pale communion we have that song river which is a really maudlin and you know beautiful and aching track that would be you know perfect on something like still life and old head fans were like no no <laughs> you are no longer the opeth that i have sworn my dying that shit to. drives me up the goddamn wall because they aren't even radically different they're yeah. mildly different mildly and people different. are like no i can't do this like but so, so so here's the thing and like maybe this is like you know the the last time the, the thought that ties us all together for me why do i give a fuck right like or maybe i'm answering the just let people enjoy things crowd or just let people not enjoy things crowd which sure like i'm not busting down any doors and shooting people for not liking um in Kauda Venom or whatever. Um, I'll do it. I love you, Opeth. I'll oh, kill for you. you. You could do that um, mm-hmm. in, in Minecraft. Um, <laughs> so I'm not doing that, but I think that because this strain of progressive metal, one, two, because this strain of people like Stephen Wilson, Dan Gilderland, and so on, and this strain of three the reaction to what happens when artists experiment and change their sound because all three of these became the mainstream of progressive progressive from the root to progress progressive metal we have been left with the absurd situation where one of the most regressive genres in metal today is progressive metal yep it is cookie cutter cut and paste nonsense like like i i got into an argument with someone it where they made now i know you're you're smart enough not to make this next claim because we, we've also been calling it progressive metal but there are some dorks that say like it no longer counts as prog if they iterate on the previous sounds it's like well no yeah. that's dumb no. you can iterate because <laughs> that's not how genres work genres yeah, yeah, are yeah. by nature iterative it, yeah. it is some it is though like i like what you're saying it's an ecosystem problem. If we have bands that sound like older bands, but also bands that are pushing sounds forward, also bands that are blending sounds that have never really been blended before. That's great. That's now I can appreciate all three of these types of bands pretty comfortably in their own unique ways. Like I don't need every band to be brand new in every way. Um, yeah. But when it's like when all of the bands sound like two bands, I'm like, come on guys. Yeah. Yeah. This, <laughs> is, this is a problem. So, One of you can come up with something. I I believe in that. I believe yeah. that you have the ability. Yeah. So I have the perfect song to, or the perfect band to kind of push us forward into our book discussion. Wait, first I want to say a slight aside about Michael Ackerfeld. This is a, a oh. capsule. Go, um, go for it. So, uh, Michael Ackerfeld absolutely is the same type of person as uh, Gildenlow and Stephen Wilson. He's megalomaniacally in control of Opeth. He's very much a boomer, but he gets away with it. And the reason why he gets away with it, even with someone like me, is that he's goofy. He does. Yeah. And he doesn't bullshit you. He just straight up says, like, I'm an old ass man in my brain. I've been like 77 years young in my brain since the day I was 18. Um, And it's like, 
there's something really refreshing about like, yeah, everyone in the band knows that it's my band and that I hire you to, to, to play in my band. And, you know, I'll talk to you. I'll ask your opinion, but it's, it's to the point where like Michael Mendez is the second member of Opeth. No one else is really a member. He, yeah. like he famously changed the direction of the band because he gave the demos for the post watershed album to Michael Mendez. And he went, I don't really like these. What if we do other stuff? And he went, you're right, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I, have, just... I have listened to your input, and this is the last time this decade it's going to happen. So please enjoy it. But, <laughs> it's, but he's... It's, it's, it's charming because he, one, he has charisma, unlike um, a lot of these other people who think they have more charisma than they do. Yeah. Uh, like, I love the Flower Kings. This is not to knock the Flower Kings, but they are very much a kind of band. For people who love Prague, they know exactly what I mean by that. Um, the fact that Daniel Gildenlau would join Flower Kings for that stretch makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but here's the thing. Like, Roine stalled the guitar player for Flower Kings. Actually, Flower Kings is a perfect example because they haven't made a really good album in the last 10 years. And they've made a lot of albums. They're just they're fine. They're yeah. mediocre, but they're, they're not... all revolving around again the personality and what Flower Kings um, might sound should sound like. But one last thing that I want to say about Ackerfeld, he's just a guy. Yeah. He's just a goofy. He's a goofy little guy, and that's the vibe that Wilson and Gildenlaw and Labrie and Portnoy and all these guys they just don't nail as much as he does. He just seems like a really personable dude doing what he wants and he's like you said he's not not two ways about it he's like this is my thing and i'm gonna do whatever the fuck i want and you're gonna like it because i'm a really talented musician but he doesn't coat it with this deepness and philosophy and internal struggle and all that shit portnoy over the past 10 years since leaving dream theater i think he's gotten increasingly good at yes exactly that he's like i did that because i didn't want to be the self-serious guy i wanted to play van halen i wanted to play acdc and i'm like I'll say I'll say two things. <laughs> like one, I agree with you, um, and I think that Mike Portnoy has improved markedly since he left Dream Theater. I mean, he's always been amazing, right? But oh like, yeah, yeah. Seems... As a player, he's fucking killer. That's never yeah. been in doubt. <laughs> he seems he seems genuinely like better. Um, but the second thing is, you know, his kind of style of goofiness is not really Ackerfeld's, right? It's just a different yeah. kind of persona that other people. Um, in the progressive metal community also kind of do like Arjen Lukasen. Again, I love Arion up until a certain album. Um, but again, my problem with Lukasen today is that before you open a video by him about anything, you already know exactly what's going to happen, what uh-huh. jokes he's going to make, what the song is going to sound like, what the fucking synth tones will be. Um, Man, Terminus was not good. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And <laughs> I really fucking, liked the source too. I thought like the that source I was, was, I was great. All, I, I was like, this is fantastic. And then yeah, the yeah, source the was term, great. Terminus was terrible. <laughs> but I mean, he also did like again collaborating with fucking Anek van Gilsbergen, like one of the most talented vocalists on the planet. But they made the Gentle Storm together, which is just shit. That's a bad album. And know. also racist. As I fuck. didn't know it was racist. Um, Dude, I it has a song. It, a while. it has a song about the East India Trading Company. 
and like Ooh. their valiance in ex- their, their, their courage and their curiosity and ex- bro Ari, i knew that you were dutch but you can't be that kind of dutch come on man I mean, what are you gonna do release a concept album about king leopold the second next come on bro <laughs> like <laughs> he he hey hey langdon he really liked rubble he he just liked rubble he loved he rubber so much so much like have you and that's never, a fact that's yeah, not I mean, a lie have you never have you never loved anything well if someone would come up to you and say listen we can give you this thing that you love in copious amounts but we will have to kill two million people and mutilate maybe three to five million more why there's no thing you would say yes you have to do so many race crimes for for this it's gonna be so racist but each one of us has at least one thing that they love as much as leopold ii new opeth albums i would do that for new opeth albums you would um create a new colonialist regime in western africa and proceed to genocide its populace I'd feel really bad about it, but I would be enjoying <laughs> you, those progressive riffs. <laughs> yes. As you were I'd listening to it. crying while listening to it. <laughs> like Leopold II, I'd, I'd like to believe there's, there would be a small twinge in your heart as you listen <laughs> to the music, as he had when he, I don't know, what did he do with the rubber? Like swim in it, rub it on his face, and gentles. Make, make the first tire and go, one day this will be psychic and blow up people's brains. And people went, yeah. It what? And they're like, it's fine. It's don't just keep going. Okay, um, let's talk about good music. There's this <laughs> band um, that I found through my network, Trent Boss. If you don't follow that guy, you should. He has amazing taste in music. These guys are from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and they're called La Ciodora. And I think this is their debut album called Malt. Already a good start. Uh, released in January, so it was like released three days ago. Hell yeah! And they do this kind of completely off the chain, incredibly energetic, progressive, um, hardcore plus metal plus screamo. So think Swancore, like you know the early um, Ayadola records. Um, and all the bands that came up around that, Hail the Sun, and all all that kind of vibe, Wild straight Throne. Up, I really hate Dance Gavin Dance, just as, so, as so, off the back of Swancore. I love the fall of Troy. Love. Yeah, so so oh. I also don't like Dance Gavin Dance, but I think Swancore, for those who are unwell, Swancore is called Swancore because of Will Swan, who kind of spearheaded the first bands from that genre and produced them and stuff like that he made like a micro label that signed a bunch of the bands too so it's kind of like uh when you refer to something as c4 um as the record label that helps spearhead ethereal wave and stuff like that yeah exactly so but i think there are really good bands um stolas for example and the other influence to those bands and to um la ciodora is of course the mars volta right so think about that kind of like unbridled energy just exploding on every riff and this album has like you know fucking jazz fusion breaks mastodon riffs screamo scrams kind of vocals rolling drums hardcore riffs it, it's a it's a mess but it works that's a really, fucking really, really killer well. it's it, it rules so i want to play um royal jelly that's the second track from the album from malt um by la Ciodora. 
Okay. That was Royal Jelly. Um, I hope you can like screw your brain back together after you just heard what you heard. Because we have a goodie this time around. It's The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. <laughs> um, this book... No, I'm joking. Big, we, big fan of this. Uh, big fan of this. Uh, this book. It has uh, yeah. a Severian in it. Do you think it's about Christ in any way? Anyway, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so we are going to be discussing the dawn of everything: a new history of humanity by David Graeber and David Wengro. So let's get the elephant out of the room. David Graeber is obviously a very famous individual, or was. Um, he passed away in the last we, uh, uh, in twenty twenty. We actually covered um, uh, his book on. Uh, I think it was called "Work Is Bullshit." I forget the exact name of it. Um, a bullshit jobs, a theory. Bullshit jobs, yes. Um, so David Graeber was an anarchist, and also involved with Occupy. And when I say Occupy, I mean Occupy Wall Street, right? Like the first Occupy. And very famously, one of the um, disillusioned uh, first members of Occupy who who went on to, you know, take, like he coined, we are the 99%, right? That's that's who David Graeber is. So um, he then also tried to work in support of the um, Rojava revolution in Syria, worked with- Before uh, that one sold itself fucking out. That makes me so mad. I, I, I don't want to touch that with like a six foot pole because I think there's like a lot of, I don't disagree with you necessarily, but there's a lot of Western gays involved in talking about Rojava. Yeah, honestly, just, that, that, that's a whole thing. So Yeah, yeah and I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable enough to have this discussion. I think there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and then he worked with, as one does, with Jeremy Corbyn and then with um, Extinction Rebellion. Of course... That last one's a little bit embarrassing, but you know so, we all make uh, we all make mistakes. <laughs> I was I, I was actually going to 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 uh, address that and say that <laughs> I say these things and I I say this um, history um, and then this is going online right and also on Twitter, so there's gonna be like uh, three reactions to uh, that usually Graeber like raises in people, either they're like hardline Mar- Marxist Leninist and then they're gonna call him a lib. And a collaborator and a useful idiot and all that shit that they love to do. Um, again, speaking as a Marxist-Leninist. And then on the other end, there's going to be anarchists saying that um, this is once again tanky repression of uh, whatever. And he was doing real work in the real world. And then there's going to be people in the middle, which is me and Langdon, saying he had some very useful ideas. But also the ma- political manifestations of those ideas, the praxis of it was questionable yeah Um, and and it's i it's it's worth noting that you're allowed to make mistakes over the course of a career and over the course of a body of work i mean that's i think one thing that we've emphasized a lot here that you'll hear mirrored from a lot of people that like it is absolutely an unfair expectation that if someone gets involved in the political realm or in the activist realm that they maintain a 100 percent sterling perfect record of thought and action for the yeah. entire span that's a really and, and, absurd and thing to ask for sure and like to be clear his quote-unquote work with extinction rebellion was him speaking at a protest in trafalgar square yeah. in 2019 right and he, he spoke specifically about bullshit jobs but yeah, even he, looking he, past he, that he, yeah. he interfaced with them in a way that like you'd hope that someone smarter would get brought into the room and offer some insights 
And then it's not really on him how much of that they internalize and... And also, like, if you get called in to consult people who desperately need help, um, like Extinction Rebellion, you can do the very best that you can, but ultimately it's on them to integrate that. And their failure to integrate good advice from all corners, Graber included, is on them, not on him. It's more that it just becomes embarrassing in retrospect, where it's like, oh, God. And I mean, like, we all have that one former friend where you're like i yeah. tried to tell him to stop being such a fucking dumbass and he just never listened never listened but, but also you know even looking past that i mean the rabid like marxist leninist will find much in him to criticize uh, again anarchist anti-statist um all that stuff but now the the you know going to focus on the good stuff i think that three of his books he, he published a lot right but three of his books debt the first five thousand years Killer, um, book. killer book, killer bullshit, book, bullshit jobs, and then the one that we're going to discuss today, um, the dawn of everything. So, in order to discuss this book, we also have to remember that Graeber was um, an anthropologist by training, uh, academic training, his, right? His first two books were actually um, really, really well respected works of anthropology that get overshadowed by his more activist-driven work um, toward an anthropological theory of value. You can tell from that name that this is going to be serious shit. This isn't going to be playful pickup summer reading. And then fragments of an anarchist anthropology. Those are like, those are his difference and repetition. Like the sense of like, you read those and you go, oh, everything else is an outgrowth from this, this mind. Yeah. So... The other author, which I think will be overlooked, of course, because of Graeber's um, yeah. <laughs> persona and fame, but unrightfully so, is David. That he passed. Yes, for sure, is David uh, Wengro, who is um, has a BA in archaeology and anthropology, and then has a master's in archaeology and then a PhD in archaeology as well, um, and he's like a full-on academic, whereas uh, yeah. Graeber was more of an activist. Um, when Go is a full-on academic publishing within academia um, and working on a bunch of uh, topics around um, ancient cities and urbanism and a history of civilization like this book and um, also stuff about Mesopotamia and the Middle East like um, he dealt with Egypt but also things in Iraqi Kurdistan and other um, works such as that he teaches at the University College London at the Institute of Archaeology. And I, um, I have to admit that I'm one of those people that, like, when I picked up this book. So obviously, um, Eden and I talked about it before deciding on it for an episode. Duh, that's how you plan things. And it, <laughs> but it was both of us going like, so that new Graber, and we both had either pre-ordered it or planned to pick it up because it's just if you're in this kind of space big name you're obviously but that's what it was to me it was like oh this is the work david graber was working on before he passed it's the new david graber book i miss graber good mind even when i disagreed with him he it it took embarrassingly long into the book before i was like wait there is another author this doesn't even read like something david graber would write on his own like i i was so guilty of that as well yeah my introduction to this book was actually um way before I knew it was actually being published, when I picked up an article that they both published called Farewell to the Childhood of Man, which is basically... That's basically the abstract of this book, right? Like, it's very clearly... um, They wrote this book, and they had the intro, and they decided to publish it. Um, 
separately before the book released as an academic article. So this was um, published in the Journal of the Royal Anthropo- Anthropological Institute. I have a cheat yep. code where my wife is in the academy so she can bypass paywalls for me. <laughs> um, and basically... I love you, article, JSTOR. Yeah. So this article <laughs> is, is the dawn of everything, right? Um, just condensed and written in an academic style and much you know faster and a bit more shallow. So it contains the grain of the ideas um, later expanded upon in the dawn of everything. So it's also what, worth noting as like yeah. a brief aside that this book, unlike some of um, Graeber's other books, even bigger ones like uh, Bullshit Jobs and things like that, um, which that one got published by Simon and Schuster, which is a pretty big like uh, regular book one. Um, Debt was obviously put out by Melville House. Fucking great. Um, but this one was put out by uh, Farrar, Strauss and Garreau, which yeah. Um, for people in the literary world, there's going to be like a what? Um, for people not in it, that's going to sound like three random names. Those are the people who originally published T.S. Eliot and like yeah. Jack Kerouac. Like they're <laughs> when when someone says like they're a big name, they're like big to the point where it doesn't make any sense. You're like, oh, I guess Moby Dick did have to be published by one person first. <laughs> uh, like that kind of. Yeah. So, th- yeah, it's. It, a huge uh, yeah, I mean, this book has also been very, very well published and pushed and marketed. It got um, reviewed it, in Science Magazine. Now, how big yeah. of a magazine do you have to be to be called Science? No science. adjectives. <laughs> like, I think it was also. I think it was also on Nature. Um, yeah, and, and on all the right places, right? The Atlantic and Jacobin and Tribune and New York Review of Books and all those guys and Boston like, Review. Oh. Oh, this is yeah. uh this is a big boy book. Like <laughs> Right. And and it's actually interesting because I think what a lot of the critiques written of it point out, which is I think the first thing that jumps out at you when you read it, it is really well written. Um it's like so when Gro says in the introduction, which he wrote after Graeber died, that this book came to be as a conversation between them. Like yeah. This is an on and off conversation that they've been having for a decade, which then they finally decided to consolidate before Graeber died, to consolidate into a book because they felt they had um, something interesting in their hands and they wanted to turn it. Now, the the job of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like rewriting it as a book was not accomplished 100%. It does in t- in, at times feel fragmentary and uh, chapters will repeat themselves and the tissue between them, the connective tissue between them is not as strong. And some parts do feel like a conversation. But the yeah, flip it, side... Go ahead, go ahead. Y- you have to wonder on one end um, how much that has to do with it. So of the two, um, Graeber is obviously the better writer of the two that's I mean, that's not the better Winrow, it's just that the better popular writer right yeah like well Winrow is an uh, academic writer. the best the better i let me rephrase it's not better writer because that includes that's a much bigger bubble in terms of skill set um he's a better prose stylist yeah yeah like when you're thinking of a book to read he he and that's not to knock Wengro. Wengro is fucking immensely like immensely fucking smart immensely well read um but, you know, Graeber is better at the, I'm going to write a book for you. Like, 
debt the first 5,000 years is relatively dense in terms of information, but relatively breezy in terms of actually readability. Um, which is a huge fucking accomplishment. You're talking about thousands of years of economic history and people can read it. So it's, yeah, there's that. Um, and this is actually covered in part in the introduction as well, that like the shape of the book is obviously informed by the fact that he passed and that had he not passed, it probably would have been published a little bit later and been Mm -hmm. a little bit more refined, but yeah. There was sort of this communal agreement of like, we're going to polish it as much as possible, but let it stand as a testament rather than accidentally polish Graber's voice out of it, which can happen if one or two people. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So let's cover the main thesis of the book. To be clear, this book is 704 pages long. (laughs) We're not going to do a beat by beat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Join us for the next five episodes of. (laughs) Um, and there are a lot of ideas that are taken on during this book, but the main thesis is so in the history of ideas, specifically of philosophy, there is, um, a story told about the enlightenment. The enlightenment is arguably the most important philosophical intellectual and political event of the last five centuries, I would say, as it, of course, spun out into the French Revolution, 1848, the Russian Revolution, and many other um, constitutional monarchy, and, and it spread, we colonialism. We only get, yeah, I was, I was about to say, we literally only get colonialism off the back of the Enlightenment. Yes, um, and, and that's why the Enlightenment is also a very currently politically contested object, right? Because both sides of the political spectrum would like to claim it for itself. On the uh, the one hand, the right wing, uh, I think pretty correctly, sees Enlightenment thinkers as middle-of-the-road centrists in many of their opinions, especially people like um, Rousseau and uh, Hume and Hobbes, of course, Locke, who pretty much founded liberalism, right? But liberalism yeah. not in the Hillary Clinton sense, in, in the um, Whig party sense, right? Like the guys who did colonialism, who did slavery. Um, uh, you have and, Adam Smith is a very famous Enlightenment thinker who Adam kind Smith. of helped describe capitalism. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, Kant um, and, and other thinkers, which you know correspond pretty well to ideas that the right likes, like... Uh, family, duty, honor, um, the power of one's own perceptive tools and intellectual um, explorations and so on. A big focus then, on philosophical individualism. Like yeah. Big focus. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And, and out of that, of course, we get, you know, Mill and all those guys, like the next generation of, liberalists, of, of liberals. Fuck you, John Mill. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, became, what became, quote unquote, the founding fathers, right? Like the founding yeah. fathers... Um, were part of the Enlightenment, like Jefferson and Franklin and all those people saw themselves, well, not Washington, because he was, you know, a grunt. Um, (laughs) They saw themselves as Enlightenment thinkers. So, um, but the left would also like to claim these people, and again, I think correctly, because amongst them worked much more radical figures like uh, Voltaire and Diderot and a lot of the people who would go on to do the French Revolution, like... Robespierre and Danton and Camille de Moulin and all these people saw themselves as 
part of the Enlightenment, and and they were right um, because the Enlightenment also had ideas like you know how governments should serve the populace and how laws should be equally um, meted across the country regardless of class and rank and that economics should be dictated by the need of the populace. And Marx was influenced by the Enlightenment and all of these um, writers and readers, as well as Engels, as well as Lenin, and all of these people. Yeah, when when you read, obviously, outside of just the Capital, or um, actually, no, even within Volume 1 of the Capital, there was a really interesting thread recently about how Volume 1 of the Capital is built less on economic theory and more on epistemology, but specifically yeah. a post-Enlightenment epistemology of trying to integrate idealism and beyond the realm of the pure senses uh, into materialism in order to make its arguments work, which is um, to, to hop back out of philosophy gobbledygook and uh, lingo. Uh, it, you wouldn't be able to have that before the Enlightenment, that just that kind of synthesis of thought would be like really fucking weird to have in the 1400s, for instance. Yeah. So <laughs> You're like, one... this is a spaceman from the future. Yeah. yeah. So one of the um, underpinnings of the Enlightenment, or one of the main arguments or um, debates that made it up, um, is this question of human nature, and specifically the relationship between human nature and the current state of affairs, right? Um, Famously, the two... Um, most famous philosophers to deal with this question is Rousseau and Hobbes, right? Um, In Rousseau's, both of them described a natural state in which humanity supposedly existed before modern societies. Now, I cannot fucking stress this enough because I've had to sit in a room full of idiots during my philosophy BA and history BA who just couldn't get it that it was an intellectual device. They were not making an historical uh, factual analysis. They were not saying that a natural state actually existed in the past. We have – so thankfully through through the means of anthropology, we have – and, and historical analysis, we've looked at this question quite a lot, and it's a big question mark. It's literally, if you have real materially grounded insight into these questions, you will immediately get like the most major awards in those fields. You'll be massively published. You will get an instant professorship because it's clearly the big overhanging lingering question of what was life in the mind like before... Um, uh, before civilization. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they, they posit it in the way that any thinker does where you, you put forward a thesis and then you attempt to either negate or affirm it uh, in order to make insights. And then if you're having a speculative thesis like that, you go, well, if it were wrong, then this thing wouldn't appear. Uh, and if it was right, this thing would appear. And then you go look for those things. Pretty, yeah. pretty normal, and yet it fucking, like, baffles, like, most, uh, ironically, people in the philosophy field who are often yeah. very, very dim. Yeah. So... I love you, philosophy. Well, not... I hate you. And also... <laughs> um, so, <laughs> we're not gonna... It's not a course about Rousseau or Hobbes or Enlightenment yeah. thinking, but the, the main premise, and I don't even have to tell you this because you know it innately because we, like, get it from the teat of 
in Western culture, Rousseau said that the natural state of humans without modern society and hierarchy was idyllic. It wasn't better, note, it was idyllic in the sense that everybody could um, fulfill their needs without the need for violence. Everything was abundant. Uh, people could feed themselves and clothe themselves without the need to practice violence on others. And then, for some reason, which Rousseau explores in his uh, essay, which is the whole fucking point, we um, chained ourselves into these societies out of fear of a few individuals becoming powerful. Whereas Hobbes says the opposite. Without society and hierarchy, um, the natural state of humans is a state of constant war. The only law is the law of might, and the person who is the strongest goes around bashing people with rocks and taking all their shit, and only they can uh, feed themselves while the rest live in squalor out of fear, and then they band together to um, appoint a tyrant um, to rule all of them, a.k.a. Leviathan, right? That's why the work is called Leviathan. Um, and this Leviathan takes their freedom but gives them safety, right? So you say, I will no longer do what I want, but in return, you will make sure that the uh, beefy guy across the street doesn't bash my fucking head in just because he wants to. So these in are. A, uh, in a capsule version, this is what, uh, if you get into the worst discussions about tankies versus uh, lib shit anarchists, um, this is what they will say about the other. Um, yeah. this is all, this is ultimately why this question looms so large, even in radical space, because ultimately the anarchist view of what Marxist Leninists say is ultimately a Hobbesian depiction of, uh, humanity while Marxist Leninists will view anarchists as ascribing to more or less a Rousseauan, uh, thought of humanity. And it obviously to all people including anarchists and Marxist Leninists. It's not the big question is how do you integrate these two? Because neither one feels strongly wrong. Or or I would argue that you need to move past them entirely. Yeah. And, and that's, well that's that's the point of dialectic. Yeah, exactly. God, I love you dialectic. Yeah, dialectics uh, are, are good. Um yeah, so uh, we'll, th we'll, this this evolves into the the main point of this book, which is or more of a meta okay, there's, there's one there's one one more step oh, historical you step, go on you go on right so the enlightenment did this small thing called founding modern science um modern science kind of predates it you know uh bacon and um newton and all those guys again i'm talking about western science right um but, but quite quite literally within science within the enlightenment we get marxist leninist's favorite enlightenment thinker which is hegel and then from yeah. hegel his influence on the royal society which then yeah birthed science as we know it not yeah not all of science but yeah for sure so and it's also famously one of the things that the french revolution does right like the first museum was founded in paris as part of the revolution and this idea of taxonomy and cataloging the new world in order to new world with scare quotes right um, in order to exploit it under the colonialist system and so on. We won't do the whole spiel here. But it's part of that, those ideas that really pushed towards an ordered view of the world. And again, you need ordered views because they allow you to exploit natural resources, right? You need to name trees so you know which tree to cut down for your 
um, goods, which you then sell for slaves, right? And yeah, you need to it, categorize slaves into hierarchies to know which ones to kidnap to make slaves. Um, it later builds into what uh, philosophers and scientists would refer to as empiricism. Um, and it's off of, unfortunately, that's something that Hegel very directly presaged and um, fun little aside, that was the major thing that, that Nietzsche's entire pro, uh, project was aimed against, was this notion yeah. of a strongly empirical view of all of reality. Yeah, um, but he didn't do it out of anti-imperialism, right? Yeah, uh, he, was yeah, he like did it for completely different, more selfish reasons. But yeah. the whole notion of the system breaker is the system that you're breaking is this empirical notion of history, the body, the psyche, politics, etc., right. etc. So the first thing you said there is history, and that's exactly what happened. This Rousseauan versus Hobbesian um, debate left at its core the same basic idea which is where dialectics come to play, right? That history progresses, right? It starts in one place, which is unorganized, chaotic, but radically egalitarian and free, what's called hunter-gatherers, right? Small bands of humans who forage for food and don't have enough surplus um, in order to create hierarchies and therefore um, take away freedom. And then they discover agriculture, which creates surplus and ties them to a certain spot, which makes them create cities. And with the surplus, they can now justify classes like generals and poets and chiefs and priests and so on and so forth. And from there, the road to a modern society is pretty much set. Now, you know who ascribes to this model? Every single fucking person in Western society. It is yep. absurd how wildly considered as God-given penultimate truth this model is. Like, people fucking worship at the feet of this model. And it's of course, beyond, it's yeah. considered beyond fact to the point where yeah. even if you think about something like a heliocentric model or gravity, we have names that may, maybe you have to think a little bit if you haven't, you know, De dealt with it for quite a while, but we have names of the people where these ideas come from, or in the case of ancient Greece for both of them, that um, it was actually just a, bun a bunch of people thought this and we forgot it, but whatever. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, for this view of history, this um, the, the arrow of history kind of view, you don't really even get told the names of the people who generated it. It's, it's considered ipso facto about... Yeah. Yeah, um, so over the last three decades, um, there has also been a, a new iteration of this idea, and that is all the fucking lackeys of neoliberalism who justify it to one degree or another by saying that because of that progression, it's inherently impossible to create more equal societies while maintaining the level of complexity and production and technology that the modern world requires. In other words, they say, if you're an anarchist or a Marxist-Leninist, you can create a more equal society, but then modern society will collapse and you won't get all the stuff that you like and you think is important, like food and extra, you know, not, not starving and um, SSRIs and uh, fucking chemotherapy and all that shit. 
and and they have devoted an immense amount of man hours to proving this. And and you know who these people are. Steven Pinkel, by the way, a friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, Never going to let you live that one down, bitch. Yeah. Gerald Diamond, Francis Fukuyama, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm an alma mater of the same school that he went to. Um, And all of these people whose, whose basic premise is if you look at human history, you see this progression from egalitarian hunter-gatherers to um, non-egalitarian modern societies. There's only one problem. uh, That's bullshit. Yeah. It's wrong. And that is the goal of the dawn of everything. This book takes the latest research from anthropology and archaeology and uses it to show how this model of history as a constantly progressing thing towards modern society is simply wrong. It is not supported by the evidence. Instead, so oh, you it, let me just finish the main uh, thesis. Instead, um, what we see is that before modern societies, there was actually, or, or agricultural societies, there was actually an immense spectrum of political experimentation in which societies of humans would shift and oscillate between agrarian societies, hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherers that have hierarchies, hunter-gatherers that are egalitarian, agrarian societies that are egalitarian, and any, and I mean any shade in between. Sometimes it was seasonal. The same people would in summer, have these insanely rigid hierarchies. Sorry, they're, they're usually egalitarian, right? Like this egalitarian, chaotic society, and then in winter, would have this insanely hierarchical, patriarchal um, hierarchy, right? And political uh, spectrum, and, uh, uh, and political force, sorry. And they would oscillate between these modes depending on the season, right? So, um, if we want to describe the changes that undergo humans as time goes on, it is the loss of that ability to politically experiment and to imagine systems outside of the ones that we currently live under. So there's a major component here. And that's the thing I was trying to say like quite a bit ago. It was important to get all that other stuff out. Eden was right to be like, no, Langton, hold your fucking horses. (laughs) You can clearly tell that I'm beyond excited to be back. Um, (laughs) I just, I'm like, oh, I'm ready to go. Um, So it's it's this notion of determinism that has been uh, input into the fabric of quite a lot of fields, Um, not just history obviously, as, as we've discussed, but history is one of them. And in all of these other fields, it's important to note that the notion of determinism has been, if not quite struck out, at least deeply complicated. So the notion of, say, like a physical determinism for the uh, uh, for the movement of physical systems through literally physics, chemistry, stuff like that, we now know to be not necessarily wrong, but much more complex. There's things like probability fields. There's probability field collapses. There's uh, like a number of variables that are often so large that it functionally becomes uh, non-deterministic. Um, 
So obviously it you get this hybrid state in pretty much everything outside of history uh, that goes, okay, it's not that the minute that I press start, everything that is going to happen is already baked into the system. Um, but it's also not not that it's this complex other thing that we still don't know how how it works. And so the the task of, say, modern physics is more what is that middle space and how does it work? That's sort of how we try to square classical physics versus uh, quantum theory, because each one is true, but would generate these complete opposite models of how the world works. And the world seems to work in a hybrid. So it's like, OK, we have all these interesting stuff that I'm certain if you're listening to this, you will have heard somewhere else, like really fascinating modern questions. And yet, broadly speaking, history had cleaved to this very deterministic viewpoint. Now, it's important to note that, and they had to have known this because they're in academia, and the name I'm about to say is not a small name. Um, all of these thoughts were presaged specifically by a guy named Manuel Delanda. Um, mm -hmm. Without getting too into the history of things, um, Delanda is more or less the inheritor to Deleuze. Um, and just like any good inheritor, he takes the project and pivots it in another direction. The same way Deleuze took Nietzsche and pointed it in this other direction, Delanda does uh, to Deleuze. Um, he specifically had a book in 1997, so ironically, roughly in the same time period that people like Fukuyama are publishing The End of History, that um, Stephen Pinker's early works are coming out, um, he publishes a book called A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History. Um, sound familiar? Um, the, the, the premise of the book is more of an academic thought exercise because he admits he has a scattering of data. He's not without data, but he isn't tabling it like this is a thesis. He's saying this is a speculative thesis that I think will be proved later. And I want to prime the engine, so to speak, where he puts forward the idea as, as d basically a Deleuzean understanding of history in the sense that history is more rhizomatic than arborescent. If you listen to us a lot, you'll know what those words mean. The capsule version is arborescent is basically deterministic. To truncate it a lot, there's a lot of other stuff, but it's basically a deterministic view, where a rhizomatic one is this thing can move in any of like five different directions, maybe more, but you're going to guess, if you had to, five primary things. The equivalent of like if you spin a wheel or flip a coin um it could land on edge it could it probably won't though it probably will be heads or tails but it could land on edge and this would be saying like okay heads and tails are the two primary states but then from each of those you know it could potentially branch off to you know four more and then three more and then eight more and him applying that notion to history itself that saying like what if history isn't a deterministic arborescent arc, but instead has various, again, the slightly big word is uh, homeostatic fields, um, which is, or homostatic, homeostatic, one of the two, homeo, I'm stupid, homeo, homeo. <laughs> I'm dumb as hell sometimes. <laughs> so the premise there is that it's not that these go to stable places in the sense of like, this is, uh, in the way that Hobbes or Rousseau would say, where it's like, oh, this is where history is meant to go and it lives here and this is the next um, stable period. Um, you even get these in models of 
unfortunately, you get these in models of the earliest works of of Marx and sometimes even Lenin that like you progress to an agrarian world and you stay there for a while. Then you progress to a capitalist world and you stay there for a while. Then you progress to a socialist world and you stay there for a while. This like punctuated equilibrium that instead yeah. it's you can move in any kind of direction. Certain ones are more likely than others. And the ones that are more likely are the ones that are roughly stable. They don't have to be perfectly stable. They're going to have instability in them because everything has instability in it. But it's going to be more stable than certain hybrids that will fall apart almost immediately. And that it's semi-random motion throughout this big web. Likewise, there's nothing to say you can't move backwards. There's nothing to say you can't move sideways because the important thing of a rhizomatic map is that there really isn't a forward or backwards. There's just movement. And this makes way more fucking sense because um, that's yeah. how literally all other systems work. That's how chemistry works. That's how physics works. That's how psychology works. Like that's literally everything. And he was like, no one's really done this with history yet. So I'm just going to posit it. And it's, it would not shock me if they say later, like, yeah, we read that and we figured um, we are academics in this field. So why don't we look into that? But it's so I think what they're doing and I, I want to read um, two paragraphs from, from the book is basically saying if that's the case, right? like if, if history is more or could be or was at some point more flexible, that is the, 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 the um, form that the building called politics takes was more malleable, then what is interesting and what becomes the factor under which you judge a certain society or not is its ability to mess with the clay, right? To make new shapes out of these structures. Like if it's a rhizome, then how many moves can a society see itself doing, right? Like does it imagine itself stuck on a train track or is it able to see all of the branching um, paths that it might take, right? And that becomes the lens for which they look at history. So I, I want to read from the introduction to, to the book. The first paragraph is quite long, and then the second one is shorter. Um, so, and this is talking about Pinker and Fukuyama and uh, Diamond and all those people. Debating inequality allows one to tinker with the numbers, argue about Gini coefficients and thresholds of dysfunction, readjust tech tax regimes or social welfare mechanisms, even shock the public with figures showing just how bad things have become. Can you imagine? The richest 1% of the world's population own 44% of the world's wealth. But it also allows one to do all this without addressing any of the factors that people actually object to about such unequal social arrangements. For instance, that some manage to turn their wealth into power over others, or that other people end up being told their needs are not important and their lives have no intrinsic worth. The last, we are supposed to believe, is just the inevitable effect of inequality. In inequality, the inevitable result of living in any large, complex, urban, technologically sophisticated society. Presumably, it will always be with us. It's just a matter of degree. Right, so, that, so that's the first part, where they criticize um, these thinkers and this way of thought as saying, this is inevitable, or as Langdon put it, deterministic. Right? Um, if you have a modern complex urban society you will get these inequalities so it's just a matter about like 
how many um, African-American people die from preventable diseases, right? They will always die from preventable diseases because that's the way that it goes. Or how many Native Americans will continue to be um, disenfranchised from the vote and from their land. It's just That's just the way that modern societies work, right? You can, of course, like if you cornered Pinker into a room, first of all, you should stab him. Um, <laughs> I mean, in Minecraft, but, but you should stab him so he dies in Minecraft. Um, but let's say Gerald Diamond, a more palatable uh, person, I think has good ideas, right? Um, Guns, Jones, and Steel is a very important book w- with good ideas in it. And it's specifically written against racism, right? So if you cornered him into a room and you said, is it okay that Native Americans are disenfranchised? You'd say, of course not. Like, you should help as many of them as you can. But if you told, it then said, should we fundamentally rework society so that Native Americans are in power, right? like are in charge of the land that they were always in charge of, he'd say, of course not. Of course not. Like You can't restructure society. And no matter what you do, some other minority must be disenfranchised for society to work. Inequality must exist. So I think that first part is easy for people like you and I, Langdon, right? Yeah. Um, and it's easy for anybody else listening to this podcast. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Everybody knows that Pinker is full of shit, right? Um, I hope uh, people who are listening. But then they go one step further and they say, the ultimate question of human history, as we'll see, is not our access to material resources. Now all the alarm bells should be going off, right? Open parentheses, and I'm going to emphasize the one that you should be caring about, land, calories, means of production, much though these things are obviously important, but our equal capacity to contribute to decisions about how to live together. Now, all of the heads of all the Marxist Leninists listen to this just fucking exploded, right? Yeah, like, my, to be fair, anytime that I'm reminded of that part, my head starts spinning like I'm in Beetlejuice. Yeah, right, because what is more of a fundamental truth of Marxism-Leninism than he who controls the means of production controls power, right? Controls politics, controls um, existence, the state, everything, right? And this is where Grebel, and I would assume Wengro as well, are anarchists, right? What they're saying is the... Um, question who owns the means of production is important. They, they say that it's important, but it is not the end all and be all of the um, state of the political body. You could easily. So now I'm going to do three versions. And as I'm going to go to the third one, it's going to become less and less palatable <laughs> to Marxists. <laughs> The first version, which I think even the most hardline Marxist-Leninist, again, I am a Marxist-Leninist, right? But even the the most hardline Marxist-Leninist would agree with me is that you could imagine a society where the proletariat has control of the means of production and it is still a bad society. You could could imagine that. And I think most Marxist-Leninists, even the most radical ones, would agree with me. I mean, we even see within like, historical example uh after the cuban revolution which did quite a lot for the cuban people they were still quite beholden by machismo culture that they had. yeah and this led to uh like uh, homophobic action by the state that yeah, they, and, and they also, later rescinded but yeah. still 
Yeah. So like literally a historical example of like, oh, yeah. you, you and, al- give, and also yeah. and also racism in that example, right? Like yeah. against Afro Cubans and so on. And, and it's not just uh, Cuba. We can talk about the fucking uh, Khmer Rouge, right? And and other movements like that. Um, yeah. So okay, that version of what Graeber and Wengo just said is pretty acceptable to Marxist Leninists. And then the second one is. Once the proletariat controls the means of production, they can be, or the state that they found can be judged or should be judged based on what it allows its citizens to do whilst maintaining control of the means of production. Or put simply, how tight of a control should the proletariat have over society, right? Now, the Stalinists are fucking, you know, calling the drones, the red drones, not Obama's drones, the real drones, right? Um, to, to, to fucking execute me in the gulag, right? Um, because the Stalinist answer and the Marxist-Leninist one, I'm not going to pretend that Stalin, Stalin wasn't a Marxist-Leninist, um, is all of it. Right, like literally, the in in service of control of the means of production, the proletariat has and should have the power to control every single aspect of society. Right? Yeah, it becomes the driving question of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Not nothing else matters, right? Nothing else matters. That's literally that's literally why it's called the dict- dictatorship of the proletariat. Right? Okay, but, but hold on to your horses because here's the third one. When you give a certain group control over the means of production, and it doesn't matter which group it is, inherently, you will start dealing with issues of the calcification and corruption of power. Right? There is an inherent problem with the idea of a class controlling the means of production, because that class will inherently start to calcify, become reactionary, and become corrupt. Now, this is dangerously close to Trotsky, and I have fucking shivers all over my body, because yep. I hate I hate it, right? That, that's the entire idea of eternal revolution, right? You can't rest on your laws. You've got to keep, you've got to keep challenging authority. You've got to keep being a revolutionary. We can't fucking, you know, start uh, making ministers and voting them in. We have to keep rebelling, and people who rebelled against Stalin are, are justified, and all that shit. But instead, what I'm offering here is, are you ready for it? A dialectical move. Who? Well, Ooh. yeah, and I think this is what Wengro and Graeber are also offering, which is why I'm doing this entire thing. We're offering a move outside of the thesis. The thesis is um, the dictatorship should, the proletariat should instate a dictatorship. And the antithesis is actually once the proletariat um, become a dictatorship, they become something to be rebelled against. And instead of the erroneous conception that now I need to find the middle ground, and that's the um, synthesis, wrong, now I need to find a way to break outside of this duality, I am positing, and I think Graeber and Wengo are also positing, that we need to find a way 
to both to have both right to to have both the dictatorship of the proletariat that ensures that the proletariat remains in control of the means of production and some sort of system enacted by the same dictatorship that makes sure that it remains invigorated um, dynamic and able to adapt to what will stay a changing world right yes like the, the revolution will not end history that Hegelian idea is done. It will not happen. History will not end, right? Um, things will keep changing. So we need to figure out a way, and I think this is what Graeber and Wingo want us to, to look at the past for, right? To keep our society after the revolution um, uh, malleable and, and agile. That's the synthesis. Uh, a society that is still assuring the most important thing, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat and its control of the means of production, but at the same time is able to exhibit, sorry, these attributes of political experimentation and political malleability. One last thing before I finish ranting. The failure to do this was one of the undoings of the USSR, right? Yeah, if, quite if, like quite undoubtedly. Right. So if you want to look at the example of why we need to solve this question, the USSR solved the thesis, right? It created the dictatorship of the proletariat. And fuck you if you think that was a bad thing. It was a great thing. It was a glorious thing. It, it wasn't all good, but the basic achievement is incredibly important and beneficial, right? But then... It failed completely. And when I say it, I mean Stalinism. Um, it failed completely to keep the system able to contain divergent ideas, divergent methodologies. And we've, talked, we've actually spoken about this on the cast before, right? Uh, when we quoted that poet in Book of the New Sun that, that Stalin executed for absolutely no reason. Like, and we said that as well. Our position is the Chinese government's position, right? Um, surprisingly so, right? 70% good, 30% bad. Um, but the 30% bad was rigidness, right? Was um, repression, was the inability to accept the fact that the USSR cannot remain frozen in time because time marches on and new ideas are needed to keep the revolution safe. And I, and I, had, a, yeah. I had a discussion with a friend about this recently who, who's also a Marxist-Leninist, and it's sort of, one, I wish people who believe in tankies in the traditional sense were more privy to these kinds of discussions, but that would require them to be able to actually like yeah. listen to Think. a Marxist-Leninist. Because <laughs> um, yeah. like, one thing that is privately discussed by Marxist-Leninists when we're left alone in a room are things like, obviously, Stalin's... Uh, reign as premier had failures that's that's be regardless of the seasonal nature of say the famine in the ukraine it definitely was not handled ideally to be to be brief yeah. to pick like a big bugbear um things like the purges were not handled ideally again you can this isn't to say that you can't be more sharply critical but that's sort of plainly obvious and the the dialectical critique becomes more how did those imperfections arise? Where did they come from? Instead of just simply going the moral judgment of, well, they 
did fail in certain ways. So therefore the entire project is bunk to take instead the more mechanical engineering mind of where did they fail? How did they fail? And how do we account for that so that going forward, they don't fail again? This is, um, this element of this book is actually like, in my opinion, unshakably fundamental to Marxism, Leninism. Like you can't ascribe, you can't say that you are a dialectical thinker who engages in dialectical thought, but then think that the frozen form of an actualized communist government is then done, that you've reached the end. Because that's not what dialectics says. Dialectics says quite firmly that just like physical systems are constantly changing, chemical systems are constantly changing, that historical and political systems are likewise constantly changing. Psychological systems are constantly changing. And while you can understand, say, the position of Stalin early on, so going specifically like shortly after Lenin died, which is this revolution is very young and it's much more fragile than people think. And we know there are counter-revolutionaries like nationalists, czarists, there's Western force that's threatened by a communist government because they think communism will sweep into Europe, um, which it very nearly did. Um, and so they know that there's a reactionary force coming, if not already present. And this makes you have a combination of justified and, frankly, wildly unjustified paranoia. And then from that paranoia comes, well, I obviously have to put spies in prison to make sure they don't ruin shit, but now who constitutes a spy? And you start catching innocent people, all that kind of stuff. Or as previously mentioned, the issues with machismo culture in uh, the Cuban Revolution that led to pretty, pretty abominable homophobic action that took yeah. a couple decades for them to work out. Granted, they did end that action within two decades of the government being founded, which compared to Western liberal democracies is basically working at light speed. Um, yeah. But it still happened. It still happened. We still have to account for it. And a good Marxist-Leninist will acknowledge this. That's sort of the point of rigorous. <laughs> the part where, unfortunately, Trotsky got uh, reaffirmed. God, I hate you, Trotsky. Um, <laughs> but is 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 at least the intellectual notion. If we don't need to actually have open revolt against communist governments, we do need to stay the, the boring version, critically engaged with the actions, the policies, also, whether these policies accomplish what they set out to accomplish, whether we could have had a better policy that accomplished it even better. Yeah, but um, also able to be engaged. Right? Like, yes, have, have, that's have the ability. Like. It, it sometimes gets viewed as a liberalism to say that you should have these robust political uh, arguments, but it's worth noting, and this, again, this isn't to say that the current Chinese government is perfect top to bottom and has never made a mistake. I think, to keep things brief, they've made some mistakes that we can be critical of. Again, keeping it brief. But the notion that people have outside of China, that there are billions of people and yet there is one party line and no one has debates, even in the inner councils, is remarkably baldly insane. Yeah. Like, just complete fucking bonkers that you think that, like, what they they work in lockstep or the entire government, which is fucking enormous, by the way, because uh, it has to be because they're overseeing that many people, would all agree 100% of the time. You don't get... The famous, I'm going to use Marxist-Leninist terms, the famous split between Maoists and Dengists, if they all agree. Yeah. And it's, oh. yeah, so this book, even though there are times, as you mentioned, that it comes 
pretty clearly from an anarchist perspective and so has certain incredulities towards base notions of Marxism. Um, it doesn't propose elements or components that I think are actually all that hard to integrate. This is, and I had this discussion with anarchist friends all the time that I think on a fundamental level, there is one big gap between anarchists and Marxists, but then there's this overwhelming like overlap that yeah. could, that has a lot of integrative. But uh, I want to, I, I wanted to go one step further. Right? Ooh. And, and, and you know what I Thrill me. There are three versions that would bug Marxist tennis, but I actually want to go to the fourth one. Um, I am more, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, I am more lenient towards anarchists than other Marxist tennists. In fact, I admire them. This is an anarchist podcast, right? And I have another podcast called Anarchy SF, where I do anarchist readings of science fiction. And I, there are weeks where I define myself as an anarchist. I think there's a lot of good to be had in anarchist thought, right? Um, but then my more hardline Marxist-Leninist friends, they ask me why. Like, what do you think that anarchism has to teach us? And it's this, right? It's this. Our weakness, or the weakness of Marxist-Leninist who actually did something, like did the revolution, their weakness was their rigidity and their inability to be politically imaginative after the revolution and their inability to um, contain contradictions, right? And their inability to be okay with haziness and fuzziness. And that's what anarchy can teach us because anarchy is all about that, right? Like the very first anarchist thinkers, their, their entire impetus is, okay, everyone is an individual and everyone has their own voice. How do we create societies out of that, right? How, how do we get all these voices to talk in harmony without making them sound the same? How do we create this kind of um, collaboration? That is literally the problem of anarchy. And if you're serious about it and, and you give them the benefit of the doubt, which you should, they have some pretty good answers, like even just analysis before answers, like what makes this disharmony? What makes an individual? How do they voice their... Um, desires how do they work together what makes people work together so i think for me the ideal perfect version of communism which we are not even close to and will never be close to because it's an ongoing project is how do we reconcile um the you know marxist leninist discipline um political organization very effective structures which have been proven historically to work with a more malleable agile chaotic, fuzzy control over political imagination that anarchism is concerned with. I now, actually agree yeah. completely with that. That's actually one yeah. of the big the one of the big things that I uh love. So obviously I talk a lot about Deleuze uh because I love him, but um this is actually one of the big things. The specifically was the integration of Nietzsche into Marx that he did. And and the impetus of that, which is that Nietzsche's fixation is on the individual, the life that we as as a person lives, yeah. and seeing this as necessary to reconcile against Marx, who is one of the greatest thinkers of how we as a broad society on like macro scales should think and operate and seeing yeah. that as that's the inherent tension 
the inherent tension is how do you be a person within a society, which no thinker is going to really disagree with that. That's even, even liberals, libertarian fucking thinkers, even fascists. This is the thing. If you answer that question, you fixed history forever. But that specific impetus on his end that like on, on a certain level, when we think about Marxism and we think about anarchism, we're thinking about two different scalers. And that's, I think, for me, the way that I reconcile a lot of these things. Marxism is when we think about, say, how do you coordinate a global iron supply that's needed in order to make and manufacture complex machinery and complex machine parts all over the world? That's likely not going to be an anarchist system. You're going to need substantially more coordination for that. But when you talk about, say, how a home works, how a, a neighborhood works, how a community works, these... You don't really have a commissar for a community. That's going to get weird fast. That's going to be too rigid. It's not going to really meet the needs of the people. That By nature, we're talking almost about um, one thing fixates on the very big, one thing fixates on the very small, and where precisely do we draw that line? How big of that boundary do we allow to exist? How do we... Um, and that, at least in my mind, this is the 21st century... Um, radical leftist political problem like i don't have a perfect answer to it i'm not going to pretend to um but it's i don't, I don't it's even have where i think to it. yeah it's like I, this is i think the big problem and why i, I some some marxist leninist friends of mine are like langdon you consider yourself a marxist leninist why do you even talk to anarchists when we think that a lot of the things they say are dumb and i'm like well they think a lot of the things i say are dumb but the point yeah. is that they'll bring up some critique that I don't really have an answer to. And I think that, you know, they'll bring up something that I do have an answer to, but, you know, I'm interested in this broad pursuit. Um, so I want to tie all this back to the book, right? Everything that we discussed here, like put it into a little like capsule and put it under the discussion of this book, right? Like none of these ideas, or not none, but many of these ideas are not discussed in the book. But this is kind of the strain that is running through it and i think some of the ideas that when go and graber were aiming at when they included that line about means of production and in general a lot of the criticism that they levy not just against um the right because a lot of time times they're going to be arguing with academics and academics generally tend to be more on the left like claude levy strauss is not a right wing right yeah um, they, they generally speaking don't really love capitalism yeah. So just to s summarize, um, th that's the main idea that goes through the book. There's a lot more in there. Um, one of the most interesting things that I think would be remiss if we didn't mention is this idea that the Enlightenment happened in reaction to Native American thought, which is incredibly interesting and true. Um, and, and they kind of like walk the historical line of that and how that came to be. There's a lot of discussion about archaeological findings and what they mean for the societies that um, left them, what burial means, what religion means um, in these uh, Paleolithic and Neolithic societies. And in general, we kind of condensed or cut past a lot of the detail in order to get to what um, interested us in the book. But there's a lot of just yeah. history. You look at the name, the the dawn of everything, and yeah. the size that it's seven hundred pages. And who wrote it? Two people in academia. One substantially yeah. more entrenched in academia than the other, but both ultimately from academia. Um, the book, the book delivers. 
Um, <laughs> so um, it, it's worth if, noting, yeah, that we've had nearly an hour talking about one of the threads. In yeah. the book, Delanda esque view of history is permeates the broader structure. But yeah, it, this is an insanely rich book. It's a bit yeah. it it touches back on the thing that for me that we were uh, saying, which is like when certain Marxist Leninists refer to uh, Graeber as a useful idiot or like this kind of uh, anarchist lib shit idea or a uh, lib shit full of uh, lib shit ideas. I'm like, well, I mean, have, yeah, have you have like you read his work? Like <laughs> <laughs> there were yeah. things that he says that I disagree with. That's fine. I'm allowed to disagree with parts of a book. There's also huge chunks that are very eye opening. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all of which to say that if the discussion that we had here is not something you're interested in, um, like you're not interested in solving this problem, you should be. I think it's one of the most important questions of our time, but it's I cool can't imagine someone listening to us not interested in that. I'd question maybe. your choices for listening <laughs> to our podcast. Yeah. But all of which to say maybe you exist. That, yeah, maybe you're interested in this because of um, the archaeological discussion or the economic one or the, um, the discussions on um, foraging, which are in this bo book as well, or any of these other topics, they're all um, in here, right? Uh, there's so much to explore uh, about this book. I mean, we usually cover books that have a lot of layers to them, but this is, I think, um, an outstanding one, um, even you know, in relation to the other stuff that we that we talk about. Um, so I, I encourage you, you can read it in parts. You don't have to read the entire thing. You can just read the introduction. I would recommend at least like the first two or three chapters. It'll give you a pretty good um, insight into the book and, and the main um, thrust. I think this is, without exaggeration, it's going to be one of the most like discussed and researched and gone gone back to books of this decade. Right. Um, yeah, uh, it it has the same mark of uh, debt. Where I I absolutely agree that this is going to be. Um, cause there, there's also so much to chew on in it that I, <laughs> I'd be shocked if people are like, yeah, two months later we're done. On to the next one. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, one one last thought about not it. just this book, but this kind of book for people who think that it's maybe intimidating to think like 700 pages of sometimes pretty dense and sometimes pretty breezy material. This is just a general, like one minute primer on reading nonfiction and nonfiction like this. Thankfully, nonfiction doesn't work the same way that novels work. It's not always required that you read from page one of the preface to the very last page of the annotations. You're obviously going to get a lot more out of a book if you do that. But there's a reason why even in upper level, like college courses, like you're pursuing a PhD, you're pursuing a master's, you're pursuing postdoc work, that you read just a chapter, that you read um, excerpts, and then the research around those excerpts. Um, these kinds of books are deliberately a lot more open-ended and a lot more about feeding you thought and arguments and data behind those arguments than about you, it doesn't count unless you read every single page. So I hope that people don't discount checking the book out because it feels too big. Um, obviously, if you need to get it from a library versus buying it because it's big, that's that's its own separate thing. But um, not just for this book, for books like this in general, um, you shouldn't feel intimidated 
because maybe you can't get through the entire book. Because, spoiler, a lot of us don't get through every single nonfiction book we read. And that's okay. You can still have these smart, um, you can you can have these smart discussions, you can have these insights without necessarily having to understand every single word. It, you know, that's so I want I want to say that as a means of encouragement. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think in general, like this is another mostly anarchist idea, right? This the tyranny of this idea of the complete work, right? Like this definitive idealistic, almost Platonist idea that somewhere there exists a correct version of the book is is bullshit. There are yeah. some of the most influential books I've ever read, I only read half of, or a chapter, or even less, like a few pages during my degree. Like it's fine. You can it come did- back to it. What matters is getting the notion and what the notion is for you is going to be different for yeah. for you than for other people. Like the thing that turns your head and makes you go, holy fuck, I see the world differently now. That's that's fine. Like yeah, no totally. one I know has read all four volumes of The Capital. Hell, the fact that The Capital was never finished, like yeah. Mar- the magnum opus of Marxism Leninism literally is an unfinished work. It's OK. Yeah, totally OK. Music. Yeah. So there's this there's this band. I love band. Band. I love band. band. Wait, the world has now lost its meaning. Band. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> these guys are called Galaxy. Um, and they're from Melbourne, Australia. Um, and they recently released an album called On the Shore of Life. That was in November of last year. Um and I really don't need to tell you anything except that it's muscular as hell, new wave of British heavy metal, trad heavy metal, doom, thrash. That's it. It fucking rules. Like, swords out, get on your horse, plate armor, riding down the weaklings, all that shit. I've been um, listening to so much smart music recently. Like, yes, I got I've listened to those Arca records. Fucking incredible. I listened to yep. that Ethereal Shroud record that I slept on. Shouldn't have fucking incredible. Uh, Voivod has a new one coming out that I've been listening to a lot of stuff, getting my brain going. And I say this all because now it's time to turn that shit right off. Yes, it is time to riff and also blast beat and also scream. Um, this is the point of death sentence in a capsule. You can have a smart book, and then also, I love sword. Yes, sword, sword, good. Um, by the way, maybe I'll just use this like little snippet at the end to recommend the Black Tongue Thief. Um, I finished. Oh fuck! What was it? I finished the seas that we're gonna cover. I was like, I need, I need a palate cleanser because that book was so sad and clever and, and and nuanced i just want like good old fantasy you know i just want a wizard and the wizard has an orb and he's setting people on fire right um so then ronnie my wonderful partner recommended the black tongue thief by christopher Buhlman. b-u-e-l you fucking Buhlman? anglos with your stupid names um this fucking germanic goddamn name b-u-e-h-l god fuck you (laughs) (laughs) so this is like um if you've read the Locke lamora novels so this is your rakish rogue who has a bit of magic 
goes on a quest that is way too big for him. And some of the world building is like not very imaginative in the sense that it's very Loclamora, very like dark urban fantasy. But then when it gets into the line by line is fantastic. Like this guy can fucking write. It's page turner. It's written really well, really interesting characters. And you know, has magic, swords, a fucking like a fucking fighter that has a giant war raven tattooed on her chest that like explodes out of her chest when she fights and That's kills people. Hype. And she has like a shield out of wood that can't be burnt and like heals itself. It's fucking cool. Okay. This cover for the book also looks straight up like a Jeff Lemire comic, which uh Yeah. That's I love that. I love me some Jeff Lemire. Big these vibes. So, big vibes. Yeah. So if you're just looking for, you know, just a page turning book um that's well written and is exciting, just read this. And then you can listen to Galaxy. Um we're going to play No, if you talk about a book, I'm gonna talk about a book. Give me okay. one second, Eden. So so I've been reading uh in our off time here, I've been uh catching up on on some other books. The most recent one that I'm finishing is uh The Voyage Out, which is the debut novel from Virginia Woolf. Realized I'd never read it. She's obviously a huge name. Turns yeah. out crazy, she's a great writer. Isn't that oh, weird? Yeah. Um weird. However, when researching it, I also found out she was an immense anti-Semite, which I didn't know. <laughs> she said that her least favorite sound was, quote, Jewish laughter. And I'm like, holy shit, you're <laughs> racist. Like, <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, so that was a bummer. Uh, the end. <laughs> Wait, are we doing? Ah, oh, fuck. Over, so over the break, the hiatus, um, you reminded me that I read Nick Harkaway's Nomon. Um, which literally rewired my fucking brain. Uh, we should we should do it. We should. Yeah, we should I need to pick up that book. I'm gonna probably have to. AB that with the uh, the new Neil Stevenson because I don't give a fuck. I love Neil Stevenson. Info dump on me all day, bitch. <laughs> it's it's your right, and I respect it, but I disagree with you. Look, I don't think he writes well. I think he writes for me. <laughs> yeah. That it's sense. when I go on a Wikipedia deep dive, the narrative version. Yeah. Okay. So Galaxy um, on the show of life, we're going to be playing Bright Stars, which is the opening track from this album. And we will see you next time when we'll be covering The Seas um, by what's her name? Samantha Hunt. See you then. Bye-bye.